0: Movies by Minutes, project, project number five, five. it's kiss, Silverado this time, that's no jive, by Lawrence Kastner, who wrote the show, <coughs> let's settle up now kids, cause here we go. Howdy, and welcome to another episode of the Silverado Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence and directed western, Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. I'll be your host all this week. You can call me the Professor. I wrote about this film once before, you know, but I reckon you didn't read it. And that's okay. In my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, I did a month of westerns from 1939's Stagecoach to 2011's Rango. 42 westerns in 32 days, while also driving over 2,000 miles to visit Tombstone, Lincoln County, and Fort Sumner, but I wouldn't make it to Monument Valley until 2020. Unfortunately, the car died. An excerpt from Day 692, If It Doesn't Fit, Make Alterations, dated 24th June 2015. Quote, Silverado offers us a west, in which men pull guns over just about anything. Payton Kevin Klein shot a man who was riding his horse, which seems sort of justified to the West. We hear later that killing cattle is a hanging offense around these parts. But then he also shoots a guy who has his hat, which seems, well, not so justified. Yet, he's one of our good guys. There's nothing too original about the story of Silverado. Is there ever anything too original about any Western? But director and co-writer Lawrence Kasdan puts some serious energy into the set pieces that makes this film far more fun than many another Western. Roger Ebert, in his review, writes, and it's a great review all the way through, certainly worth a read, quite aptly, quote, Too many Westerns in the last 15 years have been elegies to a dead past, played out by actors remembering the cowboys' roles of their youth. Silverado so contains a group of talented young actors Scott Glenn, the oldest, is in his forties, and this is not their last western, but in many cases, their first. End quote. Leone may have reinvigorated the western with his Dollars trilogy, but he didn't resurrect it. I remember Pale Rider feeling like an echo of that trilogy rather than something new. Silverado feels like something new. It's not that new, as I already pointed out, but it feels new. It makes the Western setting feel like something that isn't already dead. Ebert writes, If there is any nostalgia connected to this film, it will be found in our hearts and not in the characters on the screen. And really, that is the key to the Western, or any genre. Familiarity and expectation. We come in for something, and we get the thing we want. And we have a good time. The details make it interesting, but it's the familiar details that get us in the seats. The good guys are not so good as they once were. Actually, that's a weird thing to say at this point. The good guys have not been so good this entire time. I think I started into the western about a decade late to really get the black hat, white hat obviousness. Just like I mostly miss the cowboys and Indians stereotype. Stagecoach had a remnant of the savage Indian to it, and the searchers required its audience to assume, as Ethan did, that being among the Indians was a bad thing. But then it deconstructed that assumption, and for a while, Westerns mostly ignored the natives in favor of conflicts among the settlers, and those conflicts brought us good men that weren't all good, and bad men that weren't all bad. Take 310 to Yuma, for example, either the original or the remake. Wade is not an evil man. He just happens to murder and steal from time to time. The remake even plays up his second as a crazier, more trigger-happy contrast. In Warlock and Gunfight at the O.K. Corral, we saw the law in the form of gunfighters who made more trouble than they solved. This isn't a new thing in the Western at all. Standing out from the black-white morality used to seem like an exception. Now it's the norm. It's interesting, coming so late in the Cold War, that Silverado has so many parties involved in its central conflicts. We're beyond Vietnam now and it's like we don't even know who the enemy is anymore, and we're not united on how to fight the enemy either. But in the end, it still comes down to a series of standoffs and shootouts, because that's how we like it. End quote. Additionally, I must reference part of Flash Cinema's review that refers to Silverado as, quote, a game of Western movie bingo. B6 is Peyton, the gunfighter who tries to put his past behind while searching for redemption. I-11 is Emmett, the stoic and steely hot hand with a gun. There are both a cattle range war and a wagon train of immigrant settlers looking to make a better life in the West. Mix in smoke-filled saloons inhabited by unscrupulous gamblers and venal, immoral villains. Fill the screen with the breathtaking natural vistas of New Mexico. Hit us with a bombastic score reminiscent of the Magnificent Seven theme. Add a bunch of guns. Next, toss in a bit of casual racism and underwritten female characters especially our cat's Hannah. End quote. Though we are in the mostly quiet beginning of the film that will get a little noisy and convoluted later, in the first five minutes of the film, we've already had 16 gunshots and three men killed. As minute six begins, Emmett, Scott Glenn, has been riding through a slow desert montage on one of the dead men's horses, another of their horses in tow. From the script. He moves from high mountain terrain down country, through meadow and canyon. He makes night camp near a rushing stream. The land flattens as he approaches the desert. The sun beats at him as he dismounts at the edge of a white-hot plain. He takes a short pull from his canteen and squints off across the flat, empty space. All he can see is blinding sand and blue sky. Emmet is now surrounded by the white blankness moving slowly under the broiling sun. He stops his walking horses and squints out into the distance, seeing something. We see it too, but just barely. A distant, horizontal smudge on the glaring sand. Emmett slows, his horse going below frame. The music settles. Second five, reverse. That smudge stands out. Upper middle frame surrounded by nothing but desert sand. We hear one of the horses off screen. We get an on-screen credit for executive producers Charles O'Coon and Michael Grillo. In second twelve we reverse and that smudge is replaced with Emmett approaching on horseback slowly. He rides a white horse and it was he who was set upon in the opening scene so we can assume he is a good guy. The horse trailing behind him by a lead is a pinto. We hear the sounds of buzzards, but we do not see them. We get an on-screen credit, written by Lawrence Kasdan and Mark Kasdan. Note that credit has an ampersand, which in writing credits means the two writers worked as a team, as opposed to one rewriting the other. Lawrence and Mark are brothers. Lawrence's wife Meg, and their young sons Jonathan and Jake, will all appear later in the film. Jake will go on to write and direct one of my favorite films, 1998's Zero Effect. Lawrence Katzen, of course, wrote the screenplays for The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of the Jedi, and Wyatt Earp, which not only stars Kevin Costner, but uses the Old West Town set built for this film. camera tilts down and pans to the right, losing the horizon and the nearing Emmett and the two horses to reveal feet in socks. Unlike in the script. From the script. Emmett reaches the smudge. It is a man, barefoot and dressed only in long johns, his head propped on a rock, eyes closed. The man's skin is burned red and beginning to blister, his lips parched, yet there is a curious ease to his repose. If he has lain down here to die, he has done it in peace. The camera keeps panning to the right, revealing, yes, a man in long johns, his left arm beside him, his right hand over his heart. We hear one of the horses, whinny as the camera gets to this man's head, resting on a rock. This is Payton. In his book, Westerns, Making the Man in Fiction and Film, Lee Clark Mitchell writes, among other things, about the excess of men bathing or undressing in westerns. Specifically, quote, no other genre has men bathe as often as westerns where they repeatedly stripped down to nothing more than an occasional hat, cigar, and bubbles in order to soak the dust away. But is that really the reason? After all, so much hot water, so much soap, does not simply register the passage from barbarism to civility, cleanliness being next to godliness in the period when westerns are set. There seems to be a deeper logic at work in such scenes. Requiring the man to disrobe, put his body recliningly on display then slowly soak back into a rejuvenated, upright condition. End quote. Peyton isn't bathing, but he is, one, stripped down to his long johnson socks, left for dead, vulnerable to the elements, though he seems quite unexpectedly comfortable, which leads me to two, Peyton is essentially introduced as being part of the desert itself. That smudge from the script is a man who might as well be a smudge, or a rock, or the sand itself. This is a western after the genre has grown old, and Peyton is a cowboy who may not be old, but he has more age to him than his years, and he is quite comfortable in his skin, as each of our lead characters is in this film. In this introduction, especially coupled with the opening gunfight, Emmett emerging from the dark shack to a wild river valley, is our introduction to this western reconstruction. It is a light sleeper, quick to violence, and comfortable in its skin no matter how old it may be. Left for dead, it lies back and finds a stone for a pillow. Like Jacob with the stone of scone, dreaming of a ladder to heaven, only to be interrupted by the unlikely occurrence of another person happening upon him in the vast desert of New Mexico. I'll find an on-screen credit in this opening titles, produced and directed by Lawrence Caston. Camera stops panning and lingers on Peyton. Second 37, cut to Emmett, and the two horses, against a cloudy sky and a sandy horizon. He is already off his horse, and now removes a canteen from the horn of his saddle. The two horses stand with their heads side by side, but the Pinto nickers and the white horse moves his head away. Emmett moves toward Payton. The camera dollies backward to include Payton in the shot. Emmett removes his hat, letting it catch by a string around his neck. He stops and removes the lid from his canteen. And I find myself distracted by what I think is an effect of the anamorphic lens. While Kevin Klein is purportedly only two inches taller than Scott Glenn, he takes up almost twice as much width in the frame as Glenn takes up in height. Emmett crouches down. Second 54, downward angle on Payton, Emmett's knee on the ground, and his gloved hand lowering the canteen on the left side of frame. We get a pretty good look at Emmett's leather wrapped canteen as Emmett puts his left hand to the back of Payton's head and move the canteen to Payden's mouth with his right. That's all there is for Minute Six of Silverada. I've been your host, Professor Robert E. G. Black. Host of Such Movies by Minutes podcasts as Michael Myers Minute, Dave a Minute, The Room Minute, Annihilation Minute, and Mandy Sucks Minute, a podcast fueled by hate. You can find links to these and more at lemmingdrops.com. I will be your host next time as well. In the meantime, you can find the Silverado Minute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, silveradominute.com. Or follow the show on Twitter at SilveradoMXM. Or join the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener's Saloon, on Facebook. Join me here again next time on the Silverado Minute. Yeehaw! Mix in smoke-filled saloons inhabited by unscrupulous gamblers. Mix in smoke-filled saloons inhabited by unscrupulous gamblers. Why can't I say the word gamblers? Mix in smoke-filled saloons inhabited by unscrupulous gamblers. Mix in smoke-filled saloons inhabited by unscrupulous gamblers. Now it's just getting silly.